15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts, the podcast about space, space science, astronomy, and all sorts of other stuff. Uh, on this week's program, episode 262, we'll be looking at the successful launch of Jeff Bezos into space. Uh, they put rockets on his feet, apparently. Uh, astronomers have uh, uh, attained detailed images of a plasma jet from a supermassive black hole, and there are mountains on neutron stars. Uh, it's the size of them that will surprise you. Plus audience questions, one from Mark about buying a telescope for his son. I've got a sneaking suspicion it's not for his son. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tyler in Canada wants to know why there isn't a telescope on uh, Vancouver Island. Uh, anyway, we will cover all of that. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining me as always is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. Hi, Andrew. Good to see you. Good to talk to you. I should just check my levels as well. I think that looks as though it's all right. I'm not distorting. <laughs> just checking the <laughs> yes. view meter. Now I've got one, you know, I have to use Yes, them. of course. You might yeah. as well use all the tools in the box. The tools in the box, yeah. Yes. Now, um, we've uh, got more interesting times, the, uh, the Delta strain continues to spread and uh, the town next door to us, the city of Orange, has uh, been locked down along with its neighbouring shires because a couple of cases got into the the region. It seems to be spreading via transport drivers, which is uh, very scary. So, uh, And that's that's how it got into Victoria, that's how it got into Queensland and South Australia, all through uh, road transport. And the uh, the case um, that, that shut down um, the city of Orange is um, apparently the, the story I've heard is that the driver was out of his vehicle and at the facility where the next person caught it from him for 90 seconds. Mm-hmm. So if that doesn't tell you how easily this Delta strain is spread, nothing will. But, uh, yeah, they're not taking any chances. Uh, a couple of cases have been recorded. We'll probably know more today as to whether or not it is spread in Orange. And uh, between us and Orange, it's a very busy um, road uh, interchange. Uh, the traffic between the two cities is significant. So uh, we are on ready alert here. So fingers crossed. Uh, and and you, uh, you were at a hot spot, Fred, I believe. That's right. Well, we, You're we've been sicko? in... <laughs> We've been locked down in Sydney for four weeks now, uh, and it's been full lockdown for basically a week and a half where you can't do anything. Um, mm. So, um, But uh, one thing you're allowed to do is go to the shops uh, to get your groceries. Uh, we did that on Saturday and then were pinged yesterday uh, because that shopping centre turned out to be a hotspot. So we were pinged as casual contacts, and if you're a casual contact, you have to get immediately tested and self-isolate until you get your results. And if it's within five days, you have to uh, keep on self-isolating, even if your result is clear, and do another test. So we'll Mm. have to get tested again, Um, which is why the, the... you know the um, basically the the uh, uh, interruption to normal service in terms of the recordings of space not so this is a delayed recording but it hopefully is, all but, all will be well but by the time people hear it it'll be back on time <laughs> we we're masters of time lords that's what we are yes that's what exactly right spot on 
Okay, let's uh, let us begin. And uh, uh, another successful space tourist launch. Jeff Bezos uh, made it into space, uh, hung around for a while, took a few photos, and then came back down to Earth successfully. So uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, only uh, a handful of days apart, have uh, have made history. Uh, and it was a beautiful launch, wasn't it? It was amazing. It, it was, yeah. Did you watch the the web the live stream, Andrew? I didn't watch the live stream. It was too late for me. You know, it I get up late, at Sparrows. Yeah. Yes, you so do. You get up. Yeah, that's right. I've I, got I, the luxury of. I barely had my eyes open at ten p.m. our time, so I, I just <laughs> I so much wanted to, but I just couldn't. But I did watch it the next day on uh, on repeat. So very good. yeah, it was a great launch. They they got up to Mark three. Yeah, they did. Yeah, which mm. you have to do. So basically, the rocket kicks the capsule up to a, a speed of roughly it's roughly uh, one to one and a half kilometers per second. So it's nothing like what you need to go into orbit, which is eight kilometers per second horizontally. Mm. Uh, yeah. But uh, still, it's pretty flashy. Uh, and um, I did watch it. Uh, it reminded me of many space launches I've watched because it had all the trimmings, the countdown. There was a hold in the countdown at 15 minutes just to check that everything was all right. and uh, Check the tyre pressure. Uh, uh, indeed, that's very important. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's nice to see the, the four astronauts boarding uh, the capsule uh, and their reaction when they came down afterwards. And that, that it actually, for me, is the special bit of this launch mm. um, because it's not just uh, Jeff Bezos himself, the world's richest man, uh, but his brother Mark, who's a big fan of Jeff's, as you might expect, but also um, this lovely lady, uh, Wally Funk, um, who, if I remember rightly, her real name is, uh, it is... Uh, Mary, I think, Mary Wallace Funk, but she always got Wally. She's 82 years old, a role model for all us oldies, uh, and she was one of the Mercury 13. So uh, the Mercury 7, which many of us have heard of, were the seven astronauts trained up for the Mercury program, which was right at the beginning of uh, the United States' um, crewed flight, space flight. Uh, and indeed, it was manned in those days because they were all men. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, the first missions as a precursor to Gemini and then to uh, Apollo. But there was the Mercury 13, who were th uh, 13 female astronauts trained up to the same level, passed the same tests, had all the same attributes, and any one of them could have gone into space, but none of them did. Uh, mm -hmm. So much for equality in the early 1960s. Uh, Wally Funk became uh, a very big name in aviation. Uh, she was a, a, an accomplished fighter pilot. She kind of you know, did all the training, um, but uh, gave up uh, on ever going into space until Jeff Bezos came along and said, "I want you as the passenger on the first, uh, the first uh, uh, Blue Origin flight of the New Shepard spacecraft," which is what Wonderful. happened. And she was, yeah, she was just thrilled. So she is now the oldest person to have gone into space because she crossed the Kármán line at 100, 100 kilometers. That same flight also took the youngest person to have been into space. That's uh, right. Because uh, the, the story is an, an incredible story. Uh, there was an auction for the fourth seat on the, on the mission. Um, and the person who won the auction uh, the day before the flight was due to take place said he was too busy. Uh, there's a headline I've seen. <laughs> Winner of auction, $30 million, too busy to, to 
participate in the space flight. Anyway, that's all right. Uh, so they they gave it to the next person down, and it turns out that this was a rather rich man in the Netherlands whose son is a pilot, a teenager, 18 years old. Yeah. He uh, also flew. Uh, his name is Oliver Damon. Uh, and so it, it became, it made history, the first ever commercial astronaut to pu- purchase a ticket uh, and also the youngest person to fly in space. What a great story. It's a great story. He might not have been first in terms of space tourism, but he certainly made a bigger exclamation. Yeah, mark. yeah. Now, it, I've it, got a question, Fred. Yes. The, uh, the, 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 the two men involved in this, uh, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, did it in very, very different ways. Yeah. Jeff did it yeah. with a rocket yep. straight up and down yep. and Richard did it with a, uh, a space plane basically yep. Uh, yep. launched from the belly of a, uh, of a carrier. Yep. Which one would be the most fun? I, uh, I'm, I'm thinking I'd like to go up in a rocket. I think that would yep. be the even one that looks as... Um, Unsavory as, as Jeff's, but um, I think I don't, think a, don't go there, I, Andrew. I couldn't help it. Marnie said the same thing. <laughs> I think I think going up in a rocket would be the cool way to go. Um, I think you're probably right. Look, uh, in an ideal world, we'd get to sample both, wouldn't we? Yes, uh, yes, indeed. The, the, the thing about the the Virgin Galactic mode of operation is it's a much longer process so i think the whole mm. thing goes for about an hour and a half so you get more bang for your buck you do you get this flight up to about 16 kilometers in a very unusual aircraft the, the, for want of a better well, term i should, hanging underneath should have rephrased it. that yeah hanging underneath it yeah um, but then they, they drop the rocket plane so you still get the rocket thing you you are shooting upwards at probably something like the same speed to get you up to a kilometer per second or thereabouts um, and then glide back to earth so a totally different process uh, mm. the, the the new blue origin one is as you said it's a rocket you stick, sit on top of it in a capsule that's not that dissimilar from the uh, you know the apollo capsules or the orion capsules um, and then you come back uh, on a parachute because the rocket itself fully automatically lands on its own, the, the, the booster. Extraordinary technology that they've perfected. Um, and I think either of those will be a thrill. But, you know, I, I, I lean towards the same as you, I think. Yeah, yeah, I think the traditional rocket launches um, yeah, would be exciting. Mm. All right, well done to both and, uh, yeah, uh, another uh, giant leap. Uh, now let's uh, move on to our, our next story, Fred, and, and this one is uh, exciting for a completely different reason. Detailed images of a plasma jet from a supermassive black hole. Now we know about these plasma jets. We've had questions about plasma jets. Uh, to get an image, I think would um, you know take it to a whole new level. Indeed, that's right. And uh, this is a this is a story from an old friend of ours, the Event Horizon Telescope. Mm. Uh, which, of course, in 2019 captured the very first image of the event horizon uh, of a supermassive black hole in the galaxy M87. Uh, so uh, we've, we, you and I have talked about this before, and we, we kind of always suspect that there's much more going on in the background that this telescope has observed that we don't know about yet. Uh, and so now we do, because a new image has been released, uh, I'm not sure when this image was, or the, the several images, I think, but w- when they were made. But they um, they reveal the, as you said, the plasma jet being emitted from the supermassive black hole at the centre of a very well-known galaxy called Centaurus A, uh, one of the first radio galaxies detected, which is why it's got an A. Um, 
it's uh, it, it, it's uh, uh, basically the the super sorry the relativistic flow coming from one of the poles of this black hole and to put that into English uh, you and I have spoken before about the fact that yes black holes suck things in so you get an accretion disk of material swirling around it and that's what becomes visible in in uh, radio waves and infrared uh, <clears throat> but some of that stuff doesn't get sucked into the black hole it gets refocused by the magnetic fields of the black hole to squirt out as a as a jet north and south the north and south poles of the black hole if i can put it that way uh, yeah. at relativistic velocities which means nearly the speed of light uh, and so that is what has been imaged now we see the effect of these jets <clears throat> excuse me when we look at radio images of what we call active galaxies they're active in that their their black holes are consuming material uh, and those jets sometimes ex- they sometimes extend hundreds of thousands of light years into space around wow. the, the galaxy. So they're visible at great distances. But this is the first time we've seen one kind of as it's being emitted. It's mm. the, the point at which it's squirting out. And what you what you see, uh, it, it looks just like somebody's thrown down two sticks and lit them up or painted them orange and taken a photograph. But yeah, it's a that's, bit what, more than that's that. what it looks like. Um, it is, it's a cone of material and uh, it, it's... Uh, probably a hollow cone and uh, that might mean that the black hole is processing slightly it's rotating uh, and the the uh, the material is coming out in this conical shape a hollow cone so all you see is the edges they're the bits that are lit up because the mm. center itself is not luminous so a, rem- a remarkable image absolutely extraordinary stuff uh, and a great achievement for the for the uh, Event Horizon Telescope, which you'll remember is eight radio observatories on the west in the Western Hemisphere of our planet, and they all work together uh, to, to basically to be able to resolve detail on the scale of a of a, a pea on the moon. To to quote what uh, uh, the author of the um, uh, Gemma Conroy actually, who wrote uh, a very nice piece on this on the. Australian ABC News website. I think she described it as the the, the the level of being able to see a pea on the moon, which is about right. Uh, mm. It's very, very fine detail. Uh, you and I are both looking forward to what comes next from them, which we hope will be... Something. <laughs> the black hole in the centre of our own galaxy. Of course. Sagittarius, Sagittarius A star. A star, that's right. Yeah. I got there eventually. You did, yeah. No, it, look, it's. Uh, I'm sure they've observed that already. They're probably still doing the number crunching because there's yes. an extraordinary amount of work needed. For I can imagine the computer power required would be <clears throat> astronomical. <laughs> oh, mm. that's a good word. It is. It is. You yeah. did answer a question when you were explaining these plasma jets that I didn't even know <clears throat> I should have asked, but I, I always assumed that the stuff that went into the black hole was what was being blasted out. But you said that it, it's the stuff that doesn't go into the black hole yeah. that's being ejected. Yeah, because <clears throat> the stuff that goes into the black hole is the point of no return. Once they cross the right. horizon, you've had it. Um, and so this is a sort of curious, and I, I confess I don't really understand the mechanisms of this because I'm not an expert in magnetohydrodynamics, which is what it's all about. Mm. Not an expert in anything, really. Um, <laughs> uh, I did used to know a lot about telescopes when I was in charge of a big one. Um, yeah, but then yeah. Galileo stole your thunder, didn't he? <laughs> he was a good lad, was Galileo. I remember him well. Um, yeah, so the... Um, 
Yes. So the, the, the hydrodynamics of it are probably pretty complicated, but it, essentially stuff gets bypassed. It bypasses the black hole itself because the it, it suggests that these magnetic forces are enough to disrupt or to overcome the gravitational force, which is what is absolutely uh, the, the number one force in, in the region of a black hole. But the magnetism, uh, the magnetic forces, or electromagnetic forces, they are really, uh, they actually can re- refocus the material, squirt it out in, in a term we call collimated, which means it's all going in effectively a parallel beam, although slightly conical as mm. we've seen. So Great that's stuff. how you avoid being sucked into a black hole. You um, make yourself a suit of ever-ready ever batteries. Uh, yeah, and take a strong magnet with you as well. <laughs> exactly. That'll help, I'm sure. Just sure put it, it all help. together. I think that'll solve it, yes. All right, very exciting news and more it to is. come, obviously. Mm. Yeah. This is the Space Nuts podcast. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Okay, we checked all four systems and being with a go. Space Nuts. And thanks for joining us on episode 262. And if you would like to help us out a bit, you can do that by becoming a patron. And by becoming a patron, uh, you get uh, bonus options. Now, one of the things we're working on is uh, special editions of the YouTube version of Space Nuts for patrons. So uh, you can take a look into that. Uh, you may have already received a notification from Hugh as to how to access that as a patron. Now, um, that, that's just one thing we're, we're working on to, uh, to, to say thank you to the people who, who pay us a, a couple of dollars a month uh, just because they want to and uh, and and keep um, keep the, the the podcast alive. So uh, if you would like to look into becoming a patron, you can do that via our website, spacenutspodcast.com, and then click on the supporter button and all the information's there. And uh, and, and thanks again to our patrons. But yes, uh, we, we're looking at uh, all sorts of different ways to uh, uh, you know say thank you and give you uh, extras as a part of the uh, package of being a, a patron. So uh, thank you again for your ongoing support. Uh, we've got uh, so many patrons now, I, I, um, I've forgotten all their names, Fred. So, uh, But we, we know who they are. They sometimes send us questions. But, uh, yes, uh, they're fabulous people. In fact, all our listeners are fabulous people, so um, uh, uh, we, we really do appreciate the support in whatever form. Now, let's move on to our next story, and this one I find uh, uh, extraordinary. We've, uh, we've talked about neutron stars, and I guess we should probably revisit what a neutron star is before we talk about the mountain ranges that exist <laughs> on neutron stars. Now, um, I, I, as I read through this, it got more and more extraordinary. When you talk mountain, you're thinking huge obelisks of, of stone, and of course that wouldn't be the case on a neutron star, but they do have mountain um, features, just really not quite big ones. <laughs> it's bizarre. Exactly. It is, isn't it? And I think I think this is a great story. Um, and it, it once again it shows the power of the theoretical physics that goes into understanding things like neutron stars. So, what's a neutron star? Uh, it's in, in some ways it's related to black holes uh, because. Um, when a massive star gets to the end of its life, uh, if it's massive enough, if it is big enough, it will explode in a supernova, its core will collapse, and if that core is big enough, it will overcome 
every known force of nature collapsed to become a black hole. But there's a kind of intermediate stage uh, for smaller, less massive stars, um, maybe 10, 20 times the mass of the sun when they start, their, their core collapses. And if it's less than, I think it's 2.2 times the mass of the sun, the, the mass of the core, if it's less than that, it will collapse until the pressure of neutrons, the outward pressure of neutrons, actually stops it collapsing any further. So it's it's on its way to being a black hole, but not quite big enough to do that. And that's how we think neutron stars are formed. There are many, many of them known. Um, they Once again, they have very strong magnetism and beam out radiation from their poles, like the sort of thing we've just been talking about. But if they're rotating... Uh, these beams of radiation sweep through the universe. And if the Earth happens to be in line of one of those, you get this effect just like a lighthouse rotating, mm. and we call them pulsars. That's what a pulsar is. It's a rotating neutron star. So that much is all known. We know they exist because they were discovered back in 1967 by uh, Jocelyn Bell-Burnell, who I'm delighted to say is a friend and former colleague of mine uh, up in the UK. Um, we used to work together at the Royal Observatory in Edinburgh. Uh, anyway, that's that's that's. She, it was actually Jocelyn's work that not only proved that neutron stars exist, uh, but also led to people believing that black holes could exist, because until then they were perfectly theoretical. Anyway, uh, that is all the backstory. Uh, what's the, the, the front story? It is that um, researchers have looked at the structure of neutron stars uh, and, um, you know, neutron stars having magnetism sounds a bit weird because neutrons are electromagnetically neutral. Uh, uh, so that we know that there is a mixture in there which includes protons which are electrically charged. Uh, and, in fact, I think some of the thinking is that these neutron stars have a crust of, of different sort of material around the edge, quite a, a, a thin crust but relatively uh, rigid. Uh, mm. I didn't explain by the way, that a neutron star is typically 10 to 20 kilometres in diameter uh, and contains the mass of a, a star, up to 2.2 times the mass of the sun. Um, so the density is in the region of a billion tonnes per teaspoonful. Good that sort of density, yeah, it's crazy stuff. And that means that the gravity, the gravitational pull at the surface of one of these things is about a billion times what we experience here on Earth. So, so it's you'd not be quite small... If you would, you would be quite small, as are the mountains. That's the, the critical yes. part. It's that gravitation that stops this crust having bumps in it bigger than a few tenths of a millimeter. Wow, <laughs> it's madness, isn't it? So, you've got this ball 10 kilometers in diameter and little dimples on it that you can barely see because they're so small. Uh, and so, what it means, um, is that neutron stars. I think it's probably the case that they have seized the record, theoretically at least, uh, as the most perfectly spherical bodies in nature. That record has previously been held by, any guesses? Oh, gosh. Um, black holes? That's a good guess, actually. You might be right, too. Uh, but it's not. The one I'm thinking of is the sun. The sun oh, is, of is course. I, I knew that. Incredibly, Damn. perfectly spherical. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. I'll put you on the spot twice today. So. No, I, I'd, I'd heard that before and it just, you know, usually yeah. my brain doesn't let me down like that. <laughs> Mine always lets me down like that. Mm. Yeah, so the, the sun, 
for all its one is it 1.39 million kilometers i think that's right in diameter uh the biggest departure from a sphere is 10 kilometers which is just amazing you know that's one part in a hundred thousand or something it's just phenomenal yeah uh, well, compared to the earth because we bulge because yeah, of our rotation bulge, our spin right. yeah and and the spin of the sun is quite slow that's why you know um that's probably why it's so spherical it's 25 days on the equator it's different mm. at the poles because it's not a solid body um but yeah so um yeah so it looks as though neutron stars take the biscuit in terms of being perfectly spherical or uh, maybe maybe perfectly smooth is a better way of putting it because that they I guess they could still bulge at their equator. They're the billiard balls of space. Yeah. Yep. It's funny how we all think of billiard balls, but that's basically it. That's very smooth. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> no, I, I think of that as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Funny. Oh, I was just looking at your head. Sorry. Um <laughs> That's actually quite smooth too. It's within one part, yeah, in, I, one part in a thousand, probably. You, you could have you could have neutron star properties there, Fred. I think yeah. perfect roundness. <laughs> uh, actually, the the main new, neutron star property is that it's very dense inside. <laughs> totally dense brain. Yeah. No one can accuse you of being dense, Fred. <laughs> I've been called that a few times by teachers at school. But, oh, dear, I've been called worse yeah. than that, I can tell you. <laughs> Haven't we all? Yes. Oh, dear. Glad those days are gone. Uh, okay, so uh, mountain ranges on neutron stars are minuscule. <laughs> minuscule, we'll call yes, them that. Right. Uh, so you won't trip over them. But then again, if you do ever travel to a neutron star, you'll end up being smaller than the mountains, I would, I would yeah. imagine. Yeah. Due to the gravitational I, I suspect forces. as you got near it, you'd be spaghettified like you would with a black hole because the gravitational yeah. potential is so intense. Yeah. Unless you're wearing that 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 yeah, suit the, we were designing, course, yes. In which case, with you get magnets shot out and, the... <laughs> yeah. and never any batteries, you'd be right then. Mm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is the Space Nuts Podcast, episode two hundred and sixty-two. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Okay, Fred, time to answer some questions. And the first one comes from, uh, well, not far from you. This is in Sydney. Hi, Andrew and Fred. It's Mark here from Sydney. Thanks for the great show. A quick question around telescopes. My son is turning seven in a couple of months and I've promised him that I'm going to get him a telescope. However, um, I might have seeded that idea a bit because I also want to get a telescope. Um, I'm interested in what your thoughts are of what I should be looking for uh, something that's easy to, for him to use, but also um, something that I can use as well. And I'm looking at a spending around 500 Aussie dollars. So if there's anything that you could recommend or um, give me some advice on that, I'd be most appreciative. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Mark. Uh, I love the way you think. It's for my son, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm going to use it too. I I'm doing the same thing. I'm buying my boys a telescope for Christmas, which will be here, and they all live away. <laughs> so uh, I, I know where you're coming from, Mark. We've had the question a couple of times before, Fred, in regards to, you know, what should I buy? This is my budget. What's out there? This is what I want to achieve. And it does come down to what you want to do with it a lot of the time. I it mean, does. That's Yes. You've got it's to know the, where, you, where you want to point it and what you want to look at before you can really choose what telescope you need to get. That's right. And it depends. I mean, you've, well, you've made the point, but it depends on how much you know about 
astronomy how familiar you are with the sky can you find your way around the sky uh, among the yeah, constellations my familiarity is oh i think i might look at that thing that yeah so, so that's good because um that's that's most people's view of it which is in in some ways it's a tragedy because if you and i had been having this conversation a couple of hundred years ago everybody would have known where the constellations are because there wasn't anything else to do at night you go <laughs> and right. look at the moon look at the stars work it all out yeah um so a lot depends. I mean, the worst kind of telescope is the one that stays locked up in a cupboard that never gets used. Yes. So what you want is something that is going to fit the bill in terms of uh, being fun to use and easy to use and <clears throat> letting you, <clears throat> excuse me, get get reasonable views of what whatever you want to look at. $500 is a good amount, actually. You can mm. do very well. Um, uh, and there are several different kinds of telescopes which all of which would fall into that price range. Um, probably the most straightforward and certainly the most foolproof in the sense that there's really nothing to go wrong is a Dobsonian. Uh, and that is one of the, it's a reflecting telescope. That means it's got a, a mirror rather than a lens to focus the light. And its style is the same as was invented by Newton in 1660. Eight, I think it was, he showed it to the Royal Society, um, which has a little mirror to bring the light out the side of the tube so your head's not in the way as you look look at the, the mirror. It's got the big mirror down at the bottom and then a small right, uh, diagonal mirror to send the light out of the tube to the eyepiece and you can put different eyepieces in to give you different magnifications. Now, the thing about a Dobsonian is it's on a very, very simple mounting. It's basically a box uh, with with pivots on it so the telescope can move up and down and then the whole thing is on a teflon bearing so you can easily move it around and you just move it around by hand um, mm. it usually would have a finder telescope on it which is exactly as the name suggests something that lets you find things it's a low magnification usually about seven or eight times uh, with a crosshair in or crosswire in the middle so you can check uh, what it is you're trying to find and they're great for they're great for looking at the planets um, uh, and the moon, uh, and you know all the the sort of things that you immediately think about. You want to look at with a telescope, but they're also good for star clusters and more distant objects. You can, if you get really hooked and you've got dark skies, that's the other critical thing. Now, Mark's in Sydney, so he's got to take his put the telescope in the back of the car and take it somewhere else to get dark skies. But yeah. you can see galaxies and things of that sort, and you would get a good one for five hundred dollars. What it won't let you do is take deep sky images. Um, so you, you could certainly, using your, your, you know, your smartphone, you can actually put the thing on the eyepiece and take a picture of Jupiter or whatever it is. That actually works quite well. But to get yeah. these, if you want to develop into a hobby where you're really seriously looking at dark, deep sky images, you need a different kind of telescope with a different sort of mounting on it. Um, yeah. So... If I may just add one more thing, uh, there are two basic kinds of telescopes, reflectors, which use the mirror to form the image, refractors, which use a lens, and are much more like what we think of as a telescope, a lens at one end and another at the other called the eyepiece that you look into. Um, at the, the entry level, there are some really good little reflect, refractors as well. Come on a tripod. Uh, they've usually got twiddly knobs so that you can you know set them on the object that you're looking at but the the latest ones also have um, a facility that lets you use your phone 
to find yes, your target objects. And it's really yeah. clever. And um, I... Uh, In fact, some of them, you can you can mount the mobile phone on the telescope. On the telescope. That's exactly what, what I mean, yeah. You mount yeah. it on the telescope uh, and it, you, you basically push it to where... So the mobile phone shows you what you're looking at, what it's pointing towards. And if you type in an object that you want to look at, it'll give you a little arrow on the screen that tells you which way to move the telescope until it's in the field oh, of view. Love it's, that. Quite, it's amazing stuff. I'm not yeah. sure what sort of price range they are, but I think you would get a decent one of those for $500 as well. Mm. Now, Mark, um, by coincidence, and I, I'm serious, this is a coincidence, uh, Space Nuts has attained a new sponsor this week that just happens to be a company that sells telescopes. I'm not joking. It, it's only just been stitched up, this deal. And if you would like to um, uh, you know, search their website, uh, we have a special URL available where you can um, basically go in and choose what you are looking for in terms of uh, the type of telescope or binoculars that you um, that you want. It's got a, um, a product wizard built into it. And so you just sort of answer a bunch of questions and it'll sort of whittle down what's available in the parameters that you set and say, okay, these, these are the telescopes we recommend. Price-wise, uh, a lot of these are well under $500 and they're, they're really good uh, telescopes. The, the company I'm talking about is Orion Telescopes and Binoculars. Now, if you'd like to uh, just pop in and have a look, uh, the URL is very simple. It's spacenutspodcast.com slash telescope. There you are. So um, take a look and, and you might find what you're looking for there. I'm sure you will. They've got a vast array of product. Spacenutspodcast.com slash telescope. I told Hugh I'd be really subtle about it, so there you are. <laughs> <laughs> now let's move on. Uh, and thanks again for the question, Mark, and uh, I hope uh, yeah, your, son, your son's going to be a very happy man uh, or boy if he can get it from you uh, at some point. <laughs> Let's uh, move on to a question out of British Columbia. Hello again, Space Nuts. It's Tyler Lucan here from the humble village of Bowser, British Columbia on Vancouver Island, Canada. Got another question for you. I remember from a previous episode, you discussed the advantages of telescopes or observatories on the west coast of continents, landmasses, etc. But for what reason, I can't quite remember. Obviously, by the fact that there are several great telescopes on the coast of South America, earlier ones in California, Canary Islands, etc., it must hold true for some reason. But my main question is, why don't we have one here in Canada on my beautiful, beautiful Vancouver Island? We are on the west coast of the continent, and additionally, on the west coast of this island are some absolutely perfect, beautiful mountains that you can put a big, huge telescope smack dab on top of out of cloud cover. So how come there aren't any there? Wouldn't a large Northern Hemisphere observatory be good for science? The closest telescope I know of, which is not actually an optical telescope, is CHIME on the mainland British Columbia, which is about 500 kilometers of the Canada goose flies. Um, but I thought this, I put this question to you. Now, if this question does make sense, can I suggest that Space Nuts team start a crowdfund and we call it the Space Nuts Optical Observatory Program, or SNOOP? Because I know how big of a struggle it is creating decent acronyms are for uh, serious astronomers. Sincerely, your dedicated T-shirt-wearing fan since episode one, Tyler Lucan from Bowser, British Columbia, Canada, on beautiful Vancouver Island. <laughs> oh, dear. That was wonderful, Tyler. Thank you so much. Uh, Snoop, I like the idea of that. Snoop. 
That's that's uh, a great name for it. Fantastic. Yeah, I think Snoop's a perfect one. We really need to we need to use that. Tyler, your question was great. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So why isn't there a um, you know a decent um, international or intergalactic standard <laughs> telescope uh, in that region, Fred? Um, well, there is this chime, as, uh, as, uh, as Tyler mentioned, which is, of course, a radio telescope and doing great work, by the way. Um, fantastic mm. stuff up there in British Columbia, especially in the, um, the search for fast radio bursts. Chime is the standout star at the moment. Um, however, optically speaking, Canada does have some great observatories, the David Dunlap Observatory. I remember reading about that when I was a kid. Uh, but it, it's, it's uh, like... Many um, northern uh, cities or regions, uh, it does not have the right kind of geography, um, and it, particularly in particularly in terms of climate. So uh, it's at a latitude that is comparable with the UK. Actually, uh, it's forty nine point seven degrees Vancouver Island's latitude north, um, and that puts it in a region, a climatic region that we now know is not worth building a big telescope in because uh, it's, there's, there's basically too much moisture there. Uh, Vancouver Island, I have to say, I'm ashamed that I've never visited, but my wife used to live not far away. She lived in Vancouver for quite a while. and I, uh, I it, was actually supposed to be there round about now. No, yeah, with the, yeah, I remember. That you, some, you something got in the way. And it's, yes, something we don't talk about much uh, the um, but I know it's a very very beautiful place uh, and when you look at photographs you see these beautiful wooded hills and mountains and that that basically is the first hint that it's not the right place to build an observatory um, because when you look at the best optical observatory sites in the world you're looking at uh, Mauna Kea on Hawaii. You're looking at Cerro Paranal in Chile. You're looking at uh, the Roque de los Mochachos uh, in the Canary Islands. These are bare mountains. They are they have single figure humidity when it's really damp, uh, and otherwise the humidity is zero. Um, and that's because of the zone in which they are situated, usually between about 20 degrees and 40 degrees of latitude, either north or south of the equator. Uh, that also plays into the amount of dark time you get. The first published paper I wrote back in 1970-something was on the variation of darkness with latitude. And it turns out that you get more hours of darkness if you're between 20 and 40 degrees latitude. Mm. So you win out on that. But the main thing is climatic. Uh, you need that dry zone. It's absolutely right. It's got to be on the western seaboard of a continent. Uh, but you need conditions that are generally um, less moist than you, you have up at 49 degrees latitude. And the other thing that Vancouver Island doesn't have, because I just checked, uh, its maximum height is... 2,200 metres, thereabouts, you really need to be above 3,500 metres to get the, you know, to get the effect of, uh, of, of, of this, these perfect conditions. So uh, even thinking of mainland USA, the Western states, they're down in California. Some of the great telescopes of the 30s and 40s were built there, or 10, 20s, 30s and 40s, 
even the 10s, 30s and 40s, because the Mount Wilson Observatory was built at the turn of the century. Um, those are places where which did fabulous work, but today we wouldn't put a telescope there because they're not as perfect as you want. You want absolute perfection yeah. if you're going to spend $150 million on building a big new telescope. So um, it's all about geography. Uh, we in Australia are in the same boat. We don't have a mountain high enough. We, we've mm. got mountains that are roughly the same height as Vancouver Island, in fact, but they're in the wrong place. Uh, and so, you know, they're covered in snow, they're, they're often cloudy, uh, and it doesn't work. So I'm really sorry because I love the idea of Snoop. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> we might have to Here. ask Kyla to license the name to us for some other optical telescope that starts with space nuts, which I love. <laughs> I'm sure he'll be fine with it. But uh, too bad, uh, Tyler. Uh, yeah. Vancouver, uh, Vancouver Island, um, a, a beautiful and amazing place, but not telescopically advantaged. In, in in terms of spending a lot of money to build a very big telescope. And, yeah. You know, that's right. These mm. days it's basically Hawaii, La Palma, or Chile, or, in fact, South Africa has also got some good sites. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but love the question, Tyler. Thanks very much. And uh, hello to your dog, who I think interrupted. By the way, Bowser, Bowser's a lovely spot. <laughs> I looked Is it, it up on the web. Yeah, looks great. Yeah, terrific. All right, appreciate that, Tyler. Thank you. Uh, and thanks again to Mark for uh, sending in those questions. Don't forget, if you have a question for us, you can send it to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com and click on the AMA link where you can send us a question via our email interface or you can upload uh, an audio question. Just don't forget to tell us who you are and where you're from. We love to know uh, about our Space Nuts audience. So, um, yes, but uh, yeah, spacenutspodcast.com and click on the uh, AMA tab. And while you're there, check out the Space Nuts shop, of course. Lots of goodies there. Uh, we're adding new products all the time, so uh, pop in and, and check them out. Given the heat of the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, a pair of flip-flops would be the go, in my <laughs> humble opinion, with the Space Nuts logo on them. Um, Fred, that uh, brings us to the end of yet another episode. Thank you so much, sir. Great pleasure, sir. Good to talk to you too, <laughs> and uh, we'll speak again soon. We will indeed. Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at the Space Nuts podcast, and thanks again to Hugh in the studio. Uh, it's just a closet, actually, but we he likes to call it a studio. You know, it's got to make him feel good. Uh, and uh, for putting all the uh, bits and pieces together and getting it out there on all our podcast platforms. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks again for listening. We'll catch you again on the very next episode. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. <laughs>